with over 25 years of experience integrating mental health and spirituality, the author of Reclaiming Authenticity, When Ancestors Weep, and Redeeming the Bereaved. Here is Dr. James Houck. Well, hello, hello, everybody. Good afternoon to one and all, and wherever you are in the world listening to this broadcast at this time, welcome to Reclaiming Authenticity, finding one's courage to reclaim that which has always been in you. Very happy to be with you here today, each and every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, noon uh, Pacific Standard Time. Now, uh, if you're a follower of this broadcast, I just want to thank you for your continued support and uh, just want to remind everybody who might be tuning in for the very first time that uh, each and every week these broadcasts uh, focus on the integration of spirituality and our mental health. Um, And it's all within the context of our relationships with ourselves, others, and God or the divine. And um, every now and then I still run into um, individuals, folks, who just, they don't get the concept of integrating spirituality and mental health uh, because of what they've been taught, that it's meant to be exclusive, or how can, let's say, science and faith Uh, you know, just uh, coexist in the same sentence, let alone the same context. But um, the integration of these two um, aspects are very much important because we can just look at spirituality and, um, you know, uh, find meaningful growth and opportunities and so forth. And we can just focus exclusively on our mental health and gain some rich insights and transformation at that. But when we put the two together, and we understand, you know, the the integration of how one supports the other and vice versa, a wonderful transformation occurs in us. So, and again, these this integration is placed in the context of our relationships because we are relational beings. We are social creatures. And everything that we do in terms of our spirituality and our mental health has to be lived out in one way or another through the context, or in the context, I should say, of our relationships. I'm Dr. James Houck, and uh, let's say if you want more information about me, or if you want to leave me your comments about today's show, I invite you to visit the website. It's www.bbsradio.com forward slash reclaiming authenticity. So that's www.bbsradio.com forward slash, that all one word, Reclaiming Authenticity. And if you would like to be part of the show and uh, you would like to call in, I'll give you the number here. That's 888-627-6008. That's 888-627-6008. And, uh, you know, would love to have you on the show, and I'll be taking your calls after the break. And uh, just in case you can't stick around for the the whole show today, for the whole hour, or maybe you want to go back and listen to the other shows, you can go back into the archives and uh, listen to the ones that you missed. Uh, And these uh, broadcasts are now available for download on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon Music. 
And finally, before we get into today's show, just want to mention that if you would like to subscribe to these broadcasts, you may do so just by visiting the website, and you'll see the banner at the top of the page. You can just uh, click on a subscription link, and then you'll go from there as far as the information. And uh, just want to uh, remind everybody that you do not need to subscribe in order to access these uh, broadcasts. But um, again, you know, they are, it is much appreciated if you do subscribe. So again, there's all the information right there on the website. So anyway, um, from time to time, uh, people ask me like, well, what exactly do you believe? You know, what, um, you know, what, what's your understanding of this integration of spirituality and mental health? Or, you know, just how did you ever come to this understanding and why this particular theme? You know, when you could be talking about other things. And uh, I kind of say, quite frankly, it, it comes from two deep-seated beliefs in me. And the first belief is that, uh, you know, I, I, I truly, truly believe that everybody has the answers within themselves. You know, and I, I deal in the mental health side of things in the world as a counseling therapist, a trauma therapist. And, um, you know, the last place that people want to look for their answers is within themselves. And, you know, I, I say all this to, to mean that, um, you know, quite often we, we want to complicate things. You know, we don't realize that, uh, you know, just stopping and taking a look within ourselves is really putting us on a, a rather unique path. Because when you think about it, we know the kind of lives we want to lead. You know, we, we know what brings us happiness, and we know what brings us joy and peace and contentment and so forth, and we know what doesn't. And so pretty much people know the kind of life that they would like to lead. However, as we go along in life, or maybe we're in the wrong place at the wrong time, and something traumatic happens to us, or let's say we're going along in life, and because we've never dealt with our past or our past hurts or pain or disappointments or frustrations or whatever the case might be, these unresolved issues just keep popping up. They keep following us into one relationship after another, whether those relationships are personal or professional. And so in that understanding, um, you know, people do have the uh, answers within but they struggle to get past some things in their life. And so um, the second uh, deep-seated belief uh, really ties into the first one. And the second one is that uh, I truly believe that we all come into this world already equipped and graced with everything we need, you know, in, in term, you know, in our, and for this life, I should say, in terms of our, our giftedness or our skills or talents or strengths or character traits and so forth. And yet, again, we go through life and we may experience some very unpleasant things which make us question, do I have anything good in me? Am I good? Um, or we might hide our giftedness because let's say we were teased or ridiculed at some point in our life and or we were told you know time and time again that there's really nothing special to us or we would never amount to anything which is 150% garbage right there that message so anyway we you know go through life and we do not realize our giftedness or we might be aware of our skills but it's going to be a long time coming before we allow ourselves to be vulnerable. 
Okay. And um, again, we go from we go through this life, you know, functioning from a place of woundedness or even, you know, uh, victimhood instead of a place of healing and wholeness and embracing our uniqueness. In fact, there is so much more to us than what we have become so far. And this is really what reclaiming authenticity is all about, you know, finding that courage to be able to look inside of ourselves and reclaim that which has always been in us. Because we often fail to look within ourselves for that which we already have. So, on that note, uh, I hope your heart is well this day, and even if you are struggling this day, I, I'm glad that you uh, you know tuned in, and um, hopefully today's message will bring you the rest and comfort and the peace that you need. So, welcome to today's show. It's entitled, A Line in the Sand. What divides our hearts? Okay. Well, Throughout history, uh, there have been uh, certain events or certain diseases, shall we say, that have carried a, a social stigma and have often struck fear and contempt into the hearts and lives of people, you know, locally or even around the world. And, you know, down through history, it could have been something like uh, leprosy in, you know, say, early biblical times, or tuberculosis in ancient Greece, or the bubonic plague in the Middle Ages, or AIDS, HIV-AIDS in the late 20th century, and now we have COVID and so forth. But um, in all of these uh, aspects, you know, societies have really displayed a pattern of really purposefully disenfranchising people who are different, who, let's say, may have contracted these and other diseases and so forth. And initially, that this reaction from society was considered justifiable because they saw it as something necessary in order to prevent the further spread of communicable diseases. However, Many afflicted people interpreted being quarantined as society's way of displaying contempt for them. And as a result, many people felt stigmatized by their illnesses, and, or they felt shunned or alienated from fully participating in their communities as persons of value, dignity, and worth. Now, quite interesting, um, the author, Irving Goffman, he noted that the Greeks originated the term stigma to refer to bodily signs or designed to expose something unusual and negative about the moral status of the one who bore that sign. Okay, <clears throat> and these signs, which were imposed, you know, by society, were either cut or burned into a person's body, which then advertised his or her condition, whether you know it was a slave or a criminal or a traitor. <clears throat> and as a result, this act of branding signified to all who saw it that the, the one whom this was attached to was a blemished person or ritually polluted, and above all, they needed to be avoided. But such markings not only spoiled a person's social identity, but it also cut them off from society and just forced them to live in isolation in a very unaccepting world. 
And from this aspect, it appeared as though there was no way to remove this outward sign, let alone recover from the emotional wounding from such harsh treatment. And yet, this wasn't always the case. Um, uh, examples that I'm thinking of now, just uh, back in the days of the, like, say, with the ancient Israelite purity laws, where a distinction was made between the holy or the profane and the clean versus the unclean. And this cleanliness language comes in when we start talking about stigmatization and so forth as uh, cleanliness being the the norm, Um, you know, just a normal condition that was displayed by most people. You know, anything else then, you know, whether it was death or sickness or disease or coming into contact with blood, etc., was a consideration of outside the norm or a deviation of the norm. And then, therefore, the carrier or the one who came in contact with these uh, things, they were separated from a period of time from the community to avoid further contamination. And yet, over time, um, what started off with a temporary isolation, uh, the practice eventually became an acceptable way to expel people permanently. People who shall we say, polluted society by their conditions. And this expulsion, this behavior was true for not only people who had an identifiable condition or identifiable stigma, but also for those who had a condition that was not readily seen, such as a mental illness. Well, in today's society, not all the signs of socially intolerable diseases are immediately visible. You know, especially in the early stages of, you know, uh, whatever is considered outside the norm. And yet, one such, once a condition was learned by society, or a situation was learned by society, um, you know, society's overall contempt for what is deemed as unacceptable behavior or flawed character um, really reduced that person from a whole and unique individual to a tainted or discredited one. And then when society imposes this kind of stigma on a person, ultimately it leads to the person's disenfranchisement. Okay, that is placing them in a context which he or she is uh, not accorded a, a the social right to have his or her voice be heard or their vote counted or whatever. And such persons are then really rele- relegated to like second-class citizen status or political subjugation. Okay, and yet on the other hand, that to be enfranchised meant that a person enjoys the benefit of full admission to, let's say, political freedom, a right and a privilege uh, extended by society to all people who are, you know, and have the freedom to exercise full participation in the affairs of the community. That is just something that they thoroughly enjoy. So where there is disenfranchisement, there is also an opportunity to enfranchise people, to bring them back into society a society that once kept them at an arm's length, and so forth. Well, throughout history, um, physical boundaries have also been drawn and redrawn, often based on the outcomes of wars and conflicts and conquests. 
And when people cross these boundaries, you know, once they have been drawn on a map or once they've been, you know, uh, natural boundary markers and stepped out of their designated areas, well, the consequences involved either a penalty to be paid, a toll, a detainment, or even people were turned around and told to go back where they came from. You know, it's almost as if it's like, stay on your side of the line. You're not welcome over here. Well, I started thinking of this historical pattern, and it is quite a pattern, I will admit, uh, when I was reminded of the premiere movie that was just released last week. It's called The Kashmir Files, uh, which, uh, as I said, it's a 2022 Indian Hindi language film. And uh, it portrays the exodus or the mass exodus of the Kashmiri pandits during the Kashmir insurgency, which the movie portrays as a genocide with a fictional storyline. And um, uh, actually, the uh, the Kashmir insurgency or the Kashmir files just has a long, long history in you know, this just didn't happen out of the blue. These lines on the map were not just drawn overnight because it all goes back to the 1947 agreement signed between, you know, the British government who was leaving India and the uh, Pakistanis. And to quite simply, it was called the partition. And so back in August of 1947, when after about 300 years in India, the British finally left and the land was partitioned to, into two dependent nation states, uh, the Hindu majority India and then the Muslim majority Pakistan. And almost immediately, there began one of the greatest migrations in human history, as it's referred to, as millions of Muslims, you know, just trek to West and East Pakistan, and where millions of Hindus and Sikhs headed in the opposite direction. And still, there were many hundreds of thousands who never made it. Now, according to an article that I read back in The New Yorker in 2015, across the Indian subcontinent, uh, communities that had coexisted for well over a thousand years, attacked each other in this terrifying outbreak of violence, you know, with the Hindus and the Sikhs on one side and the Muslims on the other. And it was a mutual genocide as expected as it was unprecedented. And it was almost as if when the lines of the partition were drawn on a map, they were also drawn on people's hearts. And in the Punjab and the Bengal areas, providences uh, that you know, were part of the India's borders with the West and East Pakistan, respectively, uh, the the violence was especially intense. You know, there were, were massacres, arson, forced conversions, mass abductions, savage sexual violence, and I think in one report that I had seen that some seventy-five thousand women were raped. And many of them were then disfigured or dismembered. And so there is a long history of oppression and suffering of the Kashmiris in this region. 
And depending on who you talk to, um, Pakistan claims most of the region based on its Muslim-majority population, and then China claims a largely uninhabited regions of the Kasai, Chin, and the Shaksim Valley. So I encourage you to watch the Kashmir Files at a theater near you. I, I think it's out in most theaters uh, starting today or definitely tomorrow. But as we consider, you know, the history of people who have drawn lines on maps and the people who feel as though those lines have been drawn on their hearts, has anything changed from, let's say, those days gone by? I mean, we, we still have geographical boundaries. We still have unspoken boundaries that have been defined as an us versus them mentality. And we have sayings such as people who come from the other side of the tracks or, well, you know about those people. In fact, again, when we look at maps and we see the violence surrounding and what's come out of as soon as the lines were drawn on the map, were these lines also drawn on the people's hearts? You know, it, we get a sense that it, it also divided people based on external appearances of, let's say, race or color, creed, nationality, religion, etc. And either way, you know, geographical boundaries were often established to define who's in, who's not, who's permitted to live here, who's not. And yet, how many times do attitudes of prejudice and bias and judgment and stereotypes often draw deeper boundary lines in our hearts. See, one of the most striking, in my mind, one of the most striking and disturbing historical characteristics of societies is that it has always existed a pattern of disenfranchising the weak and the wounded. You know, people who have been labeled as unlovable, untouchable, and therefore well, they're unreachable. And for some, this disenfranchisement was due to their disease or their illness. And for others, it was due to their poverty. And still, for others, it was due to their gender or their race or their religion or their politics or social class. And many in society preferred such people, as it were, you know, not to be seen let alone heard from. And yet, just as the cries from our ancestors and those who have been victims of crimes against humanity, just as those voices can never be silenced, so too are the cries of the disenfranchised heard above the din of everyday life. You see, their cries are not only heard deep within the soul, but also their pain can be given a voice to those who speak for them. In all cultures, there were and, and are very specific laws, sometimes explicit, you know, most of the time implicit, that were given to the people that guarded against taking advantage of the disenfranchised. In other words, they're meant to protect those who were forced to live in, you know, separate from others, either within the community or forced to live in isolation. Okay? And what these laws, uh, you know, were distinct about was this perspective of maintaining a distance. 
Okay? And as I mentioned earlier, it was this uh, division between clean versus unclean or holy versus profane and so forth. Okay? And, um, you know, every society has these standards, have these codes of who's acceptable and who's not. Who needs to live over there and who needs to live here or whatever the language is. And by today's standards, you know, some people might consider these these codes or these purity laws, um, which not only categorize people or, or objects as clean or unclean, um, you know, or, but they also banish people from being the community. You know, some people might consider these these purity codes as being extreme, and yet. I think what needs to be emphasized here that it was a state of uncleanliness that was never meant to be permanent. And this is where it comes in of protecting those who are considered unreachable, unlovable, and so forth. Okay. And interesting, you go back through um, uh, religious literature, and you know, we see in, in the major, major religions that God demanded holiness in everyday life. And yet, God never abandoned the people. In fact, provisions were often made in these codes or these laws for people to be redeemed from their unclean conditions and to be welcomed back into society. Okay, for, for example, let me, let me give you this one example. You know, once a, per, a person's condition, let's say from an infectious disease, had returned to normal or enough time had elapsed, the person would be readmitted to the community by having, let's see, a, a member of the clergy or a priest or you know some other ruling figure pronounce him or her clean, and then certain sacrifices were then offered to complete the ritual of purification. Now, unfortunately, by the time of Jesus's day in the first century, this practice of temporarily quarantining unclean people became an acceptable way to expel them permanently. And again, this behavior was justified by the perception that unclean people somehow polluted the rest of society by their conditions. So this was one of the reasons why, you know, let's we got to set some clear boundaries here. Unfortunately, those boundaries became permanent. A person had no way to heal from being isolated or to be cut off and so forth, unless you had somebody who crossed those boundary lines, whether they were written or unwritten, spoken or unspoken, because they saw something more than a person who was excluded. They saw something more than a boundary issue. They saw a person who had been cut off from society. That needed to be brought back in, needed to be cared for, because they didn't see an illness. They didn't see a crime. They didn't see um, some other condition, you know, that, that kept them outside the city. So it, it was. And they reached out, and they brought them back in. And because they've crossed the boundaries, you know, literally and figuratively, they were punished for it. You know, almost as if, you know, to say to society, like, <laughs> these boundaries are a joke. These boundaries are meant to keep people out, not to whatever is uh, told to people that they're the benefit for. But, again, 
what are the boundaries that we maintain in our hearts? And again, you know, just like infectious diseases, you know, I deal with, you know, uh, you know, mental health and uh, some mentally ill people were either forced to live in isolation or with like conditioned people. And again, that's all we have to do is just go down through history and we see one example after another. And, you know, as a result, you have figures who took no delight in the systems of the day that labeled, ridiculed, or excluded the weak and the wounded. And again, you know, the people who went beyond the laws of their day and reaching directly to the person and bringing them back in. Okay, so whenever you find a person who saw disenfranchised people oppressed by a system that had gone, let's say, off the rails, you know, um, therefore, I mean, they not only sought wounded people out, but they also healed them and brought them back into community. Well, I would really love to hear your heart on this matter. So again, if you would like to call in, that number is 888-627-6008. That's 888-627-6008. And I'll be taking your calls after the break. Again, you are listening to Reclaiming Authenticity, and I'm your host, Dr. James Houck. Be with back with you in one minute. Okay, welcome back. I'm Dr. James Houck, and you are listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. just want to share with you a quick word about next week's show. Um, ironically, it's going to be held on Friday, April the 1st. Yes, April Fool's Day, okay? And uh, it's entitled The Tetris of Forgiveness. Now, if you're over a certain age, you remember playing the video game Tetris. You know, and that's the game that uh, these blocks would drop down all different shapes. They would drop down the screen, and you had to quickly turn them or flip them around and stack them in a way that you could avoid building up a wall. You know, the idea was to clear as many blocks as possible. And, of course, the more successful you were in eliminating your blocks, the more difficult the game became. And uh, eventually this came so fast, you had like a split second to like flip it and drop it. And again, you know, it would, the music would start going faster and faster, which would probably throw you off your game as well. But um, would you believe that game Tetris has a lot to teach us regarding not only the emotional walls we build, 
to protect ourselves and to keep others away when we've been hurt or wounded or disappointed. But this game also shows us how we can find healing from these emotional and psychological and and, uh, physical and spiritual wounds. Because just as these walls go up brick by brick, they can also come down brick by brick. So we're going to take a closer look at that next week. So I invite you to tune in next Friday, April the 1st, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, noon Pacific Standard Time, for the Tetris of Forgiveness, right here on bbsradio.com, Station One. Well, as I was uh, sharing earlier in the show, uh, it's just in dealing with um, how lines are drawn on a map to say this is the territory. And sometimes they were just like natural markers of, let's say, rivers or, or mountains or or whatever, or oceans, you know, and that. Um, at times, other boundaries were drawn as a result of, you know, the end of a conflict or a conquest, okay? And such boundaries went, were meant to indicate that certain people live on this side of the line and certain people live on the other side of the line. Okay? And again, it's almost as if when lines were drawn on a map, those lines were also drawn in our hearts because it, it, it communicates a, an us versus them mentality. You know, that we live on this side, but those people over there, they live on the other side. And then stigmas come in and prejudices and everything else. And something else that's reinforced by society down through history is that, well, you pretty much had to stay on your side. It's like you don't cross these boundaries because if you do, the group that you are leaving feels betrayed. You know, where are you going? What are you doing? You know, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget you're one of us. And so forth. And yet we also have one example after another down through history and literature and so forth of people who cross the boundaries, not just geographically, but cross the boundaries in their own hearts because they fell in love with a person from the other side. Classic example, Romeo and Juliet. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It was a fictitious story by Shakespeare. Okay. We get it. But how many people have you known? Maybe you're one of you know one of the, these people who have done that, who married outside the so-called boundaries, whether it be marrying outside your age bracket, or marrying outside your gender, or marrying outside your race, or marrying another outside of socioeconomic status, and just the reactions are just unbelievable. And instead of looking at, you know, a person with value, dignity, and worth, it's looked at as, oh, do you know where this person comes from? Do you know what those people are like? And it has caused quite a division, not just in families, but uh, towns, states, nations, and throughout the world. But... Let's take a look at this another way of just how do communities heal from history? 
Because when you look at, um, you know, not only the pain that individuals and society carry, you also, you know, have to begin asking the questions, can anything change? What can be healed? What can get better? What is resistant to change? Why is it resistant to change and so forth? And uh, one of the things that I discovered in you know, just dealing in, in my own research into um, individuals who struggle with trauma, but also when communities experience a collective trauma, that recovery and healing is often a very slow process. And this is due to the fact because the emotional, mental, physical, and spiritual wounds often, you know, uh, evolve the means by which people not only identify themselves, but can also be used to exclude others who have not experienced the same trauma. Okay. In fact, there's often uh, a shared traumatic psychological effect by a group of people and or societies. And yet, for people who did not experience an event firsthand, any psychological, physiological, or even spiritual effects on a person are often passed on and thus experience symptoms of trauma vicariously. Now, traumatic events witnessed by an entire society can really stir up collective sentiment, often resulting in a shift in that society's culture and mass actions. Okay, and um, you know we are, I'm sure, all familiar with well-known collective traumas, but I'm just going to run down, and this is a short list, even though it's like, well, this goes on forever. This is a short list of collective trauma that history has been responsible for. We have the Cathar genocide. We have the slavery of African Americans. We have the Nazi Holocaust. We have the Zungar Genocide. We have Stalin's Great Purge. We have the Armenian Genocide of 1915. We have the Seknum Genocide, the massacre at Wounded Knee in South Dakota, and the mistreatment of indigenous people through the boarding and industrial schools in the United States, Canada, Australia, and other nations. We have the Estonia disaster in Sweden. We have the Rwandan genocide. We have the Mai Lai massacre, the Darfur genocide, the Belgium Congo. We have the Nanking massacre. We have assassination of world leaders. We have the Azak genocide of 2014. We have the shooting tragedy on Kent State University in 1970. We have the India partition of 1947 and the Kashmir massacre. We have the Cambodian genocide and the Khmer Rouge. And we have the September 11 attacks on the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and the crash of Flight 93. And so on, and so on, and so on. You know, and and interestingly enough, that at these sites, we we see memorial placards or and or statues that are often erected to constantly remind people of the the loss that communities have felt. And although well intended to never forget, 
these reminders make moving beyond the traumatic ex- event or traumatic experience almost impossible for some people, especially when annual observances often stir up feelings of pain and unresolved grief and feelings of helplessness. And in, in some cases, not all, but in some cases, instead of empowering people to transcend this energy of emotional and psychological wounds, trauma is inadvertently passed on to succeeding generations. And these generations may take on such trauma vicariously because of their indirect involvement through community associations or blood ties or other affiliations such as integrated systems. Um, One example that I'm thinking of is that uh, the anthropologist uh, Marita Blanco developed an unpublished intergenerational diagram that accounts for the effects of uh, colonization violence on subsequent generations in South America. And this particular diagram by Blanco can be traced directly to the history of indigenous Australia. And she was able to measure things out uh, all the way out to the fifth generation. And this is what her her diagram is. You know, in the first generation, men who were killed, um, imprisoned, or enslaved in some way were unable to provide for their families. Okay? And the second generation, one generation removed. The majority of men abused alcohol and or drugs to cope with the loss of their identity and diminished sense of self-worth. And what made matters worse, that in one particular um, act, uh, the Queensland government passed, it was the Aborigines Protection of Alcohol and Opium Act, uh, I think it was 1897. This act removed abusers of alcohol and drugs to be relocated to reservations. Okay? But... It didn't offer any support to overcome their substance use and abuse issues. And by the third time the third generation came around, the intergenerational effects of violence started to be manifested in increased physical and emotional spousal abuse and other forms of domestic violence. And and families were also disrupted when the at-risk children were taken from these mothers and placed with non-indigenous families. And even though I'm talking about Australia here, this is something that um, the Native American Indians are struggling with even today. Uh, We look at uh, what's going on in the the reservations in South Dakota, and what do we do with at-risk children? Well, we want to get them out of the homes, but they're being placed with non-indigenous families. And so they are forgetting where they came from. They're forgetting their heritage. They're forgetting who they are and so forth. And so that that uh, practice, that fight still continues. Okay. So by the time the fourth generation, again, four generations removed from the you know uh, original experience, this original trauma begins to be reenacted against spouses and children. And in a kind of an interesting way, it it starts to set a norm of culturally accepted behavior. Like this is who we are. This is what we do. 
this is something that we identify with, and this is, you know, very much characteristic of our people, of our community. And then the fifth generation that she also looked at, the, the cycle of violence is repeated and compounded as unresolved trauma fuels not only more violence, but it's also replicated through severity and social distress. In other words, it's starting to, no pun intended here, bleed over into larger entities, starting to bleed over in through other parts of society. Now, um, in counseling children and adolescents um, who uh, whose parents and grandparents were stuck in their trauma, um, they the children and adolescents uh, often describe you know their parents and grandparents as stuck, and therefore because they're stuck they're damaged, or they're they're preoccupied and emotionally limited. And as a result, children struggle to develop a sense of trust or a healthy self-image and social skills and safety in relationships. I mean, traumatized parents also have difficulty with their sense of identity and autonomy or appropriate self-soothing mechanisms, let's say, it sounded very clinical, and affect, affect regulation and maintaining a balanced perspective when life you know, when life's challenges come up. In fact, parents often display inappropriate, numbed and disassociation and those responses to everyday stress. And certainly, um, you know, other issues also include, you know, changes in self-perception, such as uh, this very reinforced chronic and pervasive sense of helplessness or paralysis of initiative where they just, they, can't take the initiative, they just feel stuck and immobile, dealing with shame and guilt and self-blame, a sense of defilement or stigma, and essentially a sense of being completely different from other people. Okay? And um, following up on this, uh, an author, Adkinson, uh, also linked historical events associated with the colonization of the Aboriginal lands um, to increases in the rates of family violence and child sexual abuse and family breakdown in indigenous societies. Okay? So an ongoing challenge for healing trauma in survivors becomes extremely difficult when entire communities and cultures become stuck in their traumas related to war, genocide, torture, massacre, and so forth. And in these cases, you know, I'll, I'll be the first one to say this, traditional counseling is hardly effective when everybody is traumatized. In fact, Trauma appears to kind of reproduce itself. And as long as these social causes are not addressed and offenders continue to benefit from the exemption from their crimes, of course, trauma is going to continue. But you've heard me, you know, on these shows previously that uh, trauma has the potential to disconnect us from who we truly are, you know, who we are as souls. And the reason for this is because trauma places such a distorted template over our own perceptions. In other words, trauma says to us, well, that's all there is. That's all there is to you. This is all there is. This is as good as it gets. 
And these are all lies and distortions that come from other wounded people who have yet to embrace themselves for who they are as a soul. In fact, once we embrace ourselves as a soul, we may be astonished to see the power of our soul to not only transcend trauma and transform our wounded energy, but we can certainly empower others to do the same. And still, as history teaches us, many have feared the resiliency and power of the soul, and therefore have tried to silence its cry. Now, through killings and murders and genocide and starvations and forced assimilations and humiliations, degradations, looking at people as savages and primitive and backward, unworthy, unlovable, and therefore disposable, as those in control see fit. And what is very heartbreaking to me is that we go back down through the atrocities that have been committed throughout history. How much of these atrocities have been committed in the name of God? You know, by people who should see themselves as a soul, first and foremost. In fact, even when killing is done in the name of advancing God's kingdom, the only thing that is truly advanced is the distorted view from those who will do anything to hang on to their power. Okay. And yet, we, we can live with hope. There are things that we can do. Um, I came across another article it was back in 1998. It was between vengeance and forgiveness, facing history after genocide and, and mass violence. And this was an article that that really looked at, um, you know, uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commissions, uh, what what their role should be, and uh, you know, to keep that first and foremost, like these are the goals, and to do it thoroughly so that healing can be thorough. And um, you know, some of these roles uh, include creating public awareness of atrocities or obtain full accounts. To build a record for history, okay, so that, although maybe history shouldn't be repeated again, and then transform violence into the practice of respect that restores dignity to victims and survivors. And certainly punish offenders for their crimes and to build an international order to try to prevent, you know, future tragedies. And also respond to aggression, torture, atrocities, and so forth. And there are several positive outcomes to seeking this kind of restorative justice, because it does help reduce recidivism and, and PTSD symptoms, as well as increase satisfaction that justice has been served. But restorative justice seeks healing on both sides. Okay? Because unlike retributive justice, which pretty much determines that if the response to a crime is proportionate to the punishment, restorative justice focuses on repairing the harm caused by criminal behavior. And in an ideal situation, it's a mediator who helps facilitate a cooperative effort from both sides in addressing the wrongdoing and the harm caused to others. But this collaboration does not imply that the offender of such crimes dictates the terms of reconciliation. I mean, that's just something that is that should never be allowed. But instead, 
the impact of the crimes committed are seen for the harm that they have caused others, as well as working toward attainable solutions that will bring about lasting reconciliation. Okay, in this way, transformational healing is really given an opportunity to take root in all peoples, all relationships, all communities, past, present, and future, regardless of where these boundary lines are drawn on a map or drawn in our hearts. And yet, when we think about the people who have come before us and, and our own healing, and the healing that our, really pretty much our ancestors need as well, um, some people look at it as like a chicken and egg dilemma. Like, what do you heal first? Who do you heal first? Is it uh, healing uh, that we also heal our ancestors, or as we heal our ancestors, do we also heal ourselves? And um, one of my uh, favorite family systems theorists, Murray Bowen, suggests that a person cannot be fully understood in isolation, that is, uh, apart from the greater context of their family or community, culture, and the world. And yet within these larger systems, people struggle to differentiate themselves and to be guided by their own thoughts and feelings and actions. In other words, although individuals desire to think and live for themselves, okay, they're often drawn back into the, you know, let's say prevailing and often codependent emotional patterns that characterize a continuous wounding of families, of cultures, and societies. And therefore, systems in general are not to be discarded. That gives structure. That gives order. But they ought to provide a context from which people define and at times redefine who they are in very healthy ways. Now, in, in order to work through this process of differentiation, uh, Bowen also noted that families need to recognize how their present situation, their characteristics, tend to mirror this intergenerational dysfunction that is a result of unresolved trauma, that is a result of, let's say, collective tragedy, and so forth. So characteristics such as marital conflict or dysfunction in one spouse or emotional distance and or impairment in one or more of the children often mirrors society's anxiety and instability as they experience wars and genocide and scarcity of natural resources and etc. And again, if the greater systems out there in the context of society are dysfunctional, and if, if, if those things um, are able to be addressed and healed, people then are better equipped to identify where they need to heal their own family system, their own individual pain, and so forth. And yet, how many times do we get the message to like, well, just look out for number one. Don't go making any waves. Fall in line with the status quo. Stay on your side of the boundary. And if these mixed messages are confusing, we're not alone. You know, all we need to do is just go back in time, go down through history, and uh, we will see uh, what we're really dealing with and what we have been told it may not have always been the case. So, as previously mentioned, healing intergenerational trauma carries with it a great deal of courage and responsibility 
because we could just as easily dismiss its important and importance and passively accept the world in, in which we live. Like, okay, this is just how it is. We just have to get used to it, or we just need to put our head down. We just need to stay on our own side, or whatever it is. And yet, these distortions are so intertwined in throughout many, many systems that it appears nothing happens in a vacuum, that all may have had a hand in creating and sustaining oppression or coercion and corruption down through the centuries. But when we embrace our soul consciousness and transcend toward the realization of who we truly are, we're unable at that point to then perpetuate the dysfunction that holds a distorted way of life together. You know, indeed, the intrapersonal and the interpersonal transformation is that powerful. And that's the capacity I see, the potential that I see in all individuals. It's there. Can you see it in yourself? I'm Dr. James Houck, and you have been listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. Thank you for spending this hour with me. I invite you to tune in to next Friday, April 1st, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, for next week's show entitled The Tetris of Forgiveness. Until that time, everybody take care, be safe, and may God hold us in the palm of God's hand. For an answer, or just to leave a thousand comments, or prodding to buy a book by Dr. Hauk, it's all there. Just wander on over to ReclaimingAuthenticity.com and click around. And we'll see you next Friday at noon Pacific Time on PBS Radio TV.